David Charalambus is a true communication polymath. And on this show today, we talk about all of the ways that we're getting communication wrong from our own biases, the way that people are being manipulative with their language and with their understanding, and how we can build better communication for a more beautiful world. So I hope you guys enjoy this clarifying podcast with David Charlambus. Before we get started, a word from our sponsors. Up first, we have Cured. Now, I would be drinking a Cured elixir right now, except my wife, Vailana, drinks them so fucking fast that I can't even get my hands on one because she loves them. And the reason why they taste great, they got a bunch of really dope flavors, ginger lime, spicy mango, crisp apple, and all of them have a combination of CBD, mushrooms, vitamin D, and they're delicious sparkling beverages. So I love that from the company Cured. I also like their CBN, which is part CBD and part CBN. Both of these cannabinoids have different functions, but they're very good at helping you relax, calm down, get some good sleep. And that's what I'm into these days, getting good ass sleep. That's really important. So if you're interested, go to curednutrition.com slash amp, and you can get 20% off if you use the coupon code AMP. Once again, C-U-R-E-D nutrition.com slash AMP at checkout, save an extra 20%, and you're already getting 16% off. So total of 36% off, pretty good deal, curednutrition.com. Next up, we have Magic Spoon. All right, you guys have heard me talk about Magic Spoon before, how I used to love cereal, how I used to watch a bunch of cartoons. What were the cartoons that I used to really like the most? I mean, I could never really find Thundercats on. It was always G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe was always on no matter what, and Thundercats was like a lucky surprise. But in either case, I was watching cartoons, I was eating cereal, and that's still nostalgic for me, but cereal's full of a bunch of crap, except Magic Spoon. They made cereal taste super good and have good macronutrient profiles. So that's why I like Magic Spoon. It has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four to five net grams of carbs in each serving. Low-carb, keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and only 140 calories a serving. If you're the type of person that's into that thing, if you read it on the day, maybe you're not so into that thing. And also, right now, if you go to magicspoon.com, you'll be able to grab a custom bundle of this cereal. Try the magic of Magic Spoon for yourself. If you use the coupon code Aubrey at checkout, you'll save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is confident in their product and they're confident that you're going to like it. There's a 100% happiness guarantee. So if for whatever reason you don't like it, then just let them know and you'll get your money back. So once again, magicspoon.com slash Aubrey, you'll get a custom bundle of cereal between cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, muffin, maple, waffle, honey, nut, cookies and cream, cinnamon roll, Man, they know how to make some delicious sounding cereal. Go to magicspoon.com slash Aubrey, $5 off for your custom bundle. And lastly, we have Onnit. A lot of people think that Onnit started with Alpha Brain, and in a lot of ways it did. That was the first product that carried the flag of what Onnit was going to become. But there was another formula that actually started a little bit before that, and that was the base formula behind New Mood. The idea was that if you've been stressing yourself out, whether that's your partying or through working or through doing something that's more than you should and not sleeping enough, like myself and many of us, you're going to want to help balance your serotonin in your body. That's the neurotransmitter that's responsible for a lot of the aspects of mood and just how good you feel when you wake up and go through the rest of the day. 
you're also going to want to relax yourself and actually take off some of that load. There's so many ways that you can get yourself up. Alpha brain being one of them. That's going to support acetylcholine in your brain, which is going to help with mental focus and clarity and memory. But really, most of us have the hardest time relaxing and getting down because you can always drink some coffee and you can do some things to get yourself a little bit more focused. But now that's not going to be the same as alpha brain, but at least you can get kind of there. But what can you do to relax? What do you do to restore yourself as you sleep? And that was one of the first needs that I saw, and that was the basis of the new mood formula. It has L-tryptophan and 5-HTP, which helps support the serotonin and melatonin systems in the body. Then it has a host of other different herbs and nutrients that are really going to help support you in relaxing and calming yourself so you can, ah, chill. So if you haven't tried it yet, please check it out. It's one of our best formulas. And it's something that I take regularly, if not every single night. So go to onit.com slash Aubrey, save yourself some money, and check out the new mood. And now an uninterrupted podcast with David Charlambus. David Charlambus, here we are. And we have to straighten some things out. There's some issues with the way that people are communicating right now. And I think this is something that we can see, we can certainly feel. We're not listening to each other. We're not communicating in a way that's healthy or productive or getting us anywhere. And you have some pretty key insights on how to look at this from a meta perspective and then actually start to apply some different understandings that can help illuminate how we can start to, instead of just talking at each other, talk to each other and listen to each other. Yeah, I think that's a really a very key point at the moment, Aubrey. And I don't think it's a bold statement to say that 90% plus of conversations from people of different opinions are doomed before the first word is said. Hmm. And the question is, how do we reverse that? How do we create the situations where we can actually have open and honest conversations where information can flow back and forth? Mm -hmm. That's the key. I mean, we are not going to do this alone. One side is not going to win triumphantly. And then all of a sudden, one side wins and they've suppressed everybody sufficiently <laughs> enough that now we're in the more beautiful world because we won. No, we all have to do this together. It's a group project. We're all sharing this planet. We're all sharing this culture. We're sharing this all together and we must come together. And the basis of that, the substrate of that has to be effective communication. Absolutely. I think the, the first thing when we start talking about sites, that's when we're straight away we have a problem, don't we? Mm. Because we're presupposing we're in different viewpoints. Um, and there's a really brilliant psychologist. I think he passed away recently. Lee Ross, his name was. And he coined a thing called the objectivity illusion. So generally, as human beings, and this isn't anyone more than anyone else, this is all of us, we think that we're not biased and everyone else is. So on the road, it's full of maniacs who are driving too fast and idiots who are driving too slow. And then the second part, which is really, really key, I think and we've all experienced the last two years, is the undue optimism that other people can be influenced by what we have to share. So of the, I mean, I spoke to so many doctors and scientists and experts the last two years and everyone to a T really thought, I'm just going to share them the facts and then that will be enough and everyone will just come around. And I think that's clear that isn't the case. And what's really fascinating about this from my perspective is that it's nothing new. 
if you look through history, this, there's quotes everywhere that point this out. So Max Planck said, science moves on one funeral at a time. <laughs> and what Eva's referring to is that someone comes up with a new theory, a new idea, and all the established scientist or medical establishment, whatever it will be, will resist that idea because it differs from the one they currently believe to be true. And this isn't just a philosophy, a theory. Um, this is actually, I cited this in my book, Own the Day, that there, when a dominant theorist in science, when that dominant theorist passes away, there is this flourishing of new citations from new scientists in the field, new thinkers in the field. But yeah. while that dominant the dominant scientist is alive, then there's very few other citations that actually exist. It's like we're in a certain paradigm of the person who thought about it, and then that person passes, then all kinds of new ideas flourish. And this yeah. is the thing. Science was always supposed to be a process to help us get to the truth. It is not the truth. You know, it is, it is, it is science itself is not, it can point to the truth for sure. And it, we try to get closer and closer and continue to point to truth, but countless examples throughout history of science evolving, changing from understandings of physics into quantum physics to understandings of health and all in every different category, science is constantly evolving. So it's like people say, trust the science. It's like saying, have faith in God right? It's like, yeah. it's this idea <laughs> instead of being like, all right, well, let's, let's, yes, listen to the science and listen to the continued evolution of it and be curious, not about where it is now, but where it's going, because it's always going somewhere. It's always pointing to an even more complex, nuanced and greater understanding of truth. And sometimes a wild, a wild reversal of the popular and dominant opinions. I mean, we saw that again, I talked about this in my book where everybody started replacing fat, you know, fat in your diet yeah. with sugar. And they're like, sugar's better, you know, low fat, non-fat. Well, non-fat milk is just taking out all the fat and then really concentrating the amount of lactose, which is a sugar that you have in there, and the whey, which is the protein. Protein's fine. But ultimately, it's like, it's not helpful. And then there was this huge reversal. And then on the cover of Time Magazine, a fucking stick of butter. And people are like, whoa, <laughs> actually, we got it all wrong you know so this happens continually yeah well that's so fascinating i mean there's so many points i mean the semmelweis was a classic yep ignis semmelweis so, ignis, yeah incredible like what really is fascinating about that he had the data it wasn't a theory he had the lowest child mortality of any hospital so let's let's for people who don't know the story of ignis semmelweis i can tell it or you can tell it might as well have you tell it sure go ahead Okay, oh, so, well, I, I know this is a, an overview, really. So if you know it deeply, maybe. Yeah, well, you know, fundamentally, he was working in delivering babies. He was working in a, and that was his job. And what he realized was that when babies were being delivered by nurses, they had a much higher rate and the nurses were actually washing their hands. And the doctors were actually working on corpses, doing autopsies and different things like that. So they were coming actually from diseased people and not washing their hands and delivering babies. The mortality rate of the mothers and the children, especially the mothers, increased dramatically. And so he started to develop this theory that hand washing actually was a crucial step to the safety of delivering children. 
And this was, this went against all of the mainstream understanding. And it was so vigilantly, with so much vitriol, suppressed that actually he was thrown into a mental institution for championing these beliefs, where he was actually beaten and and actually got sepsis from a bacteria that actually ended up killing him. I mean, this is one of the great tragic stories where he was championing something that was absolutely true, was suppressed and ridiculed and laughed at to the point that he was institutionalized and killed for the very thing that he believed. And then posthumously, he's awarded like the highest honors in science for for, for promoting this. And it's just one of many, many stories like this. And what's fascinating about this is that 50 years or so later, another person comes along with the story and then it's widely accepted. Yep. Now, what's really interested is what's the difference? So I think from what we've experienced, the cognitive dissonance is the problem. So I, I know you would know what this is for the listeners that haven't come across it. Cognitive dissonance is really just two thoughts or belief in a thought or an you know, identity in a thought, etc. that do not match. And what happens is that when someone experiences dissonance, the brain wants to resolve it as quickly as possible. So it's going to change either the behavior, the belief, or the identity, or, or any one of those things. If the idea is coming externally, as, as Samuel Weiss presents the information, most people will reject it. And that's what happened to the medical establishment, that they rejected it outright because it differed from what they believed to be true, regardless of the data. That makes sense? And this generally happens if you supply an idea to somebody where that idea that they understand differs, it will pretty much trigger dissonance every time. There is a way around it. There's also a very nuanced thing that a lot of people will talk about, oh, it's good to trigger dissonance in someone. But I think it's only good to trigger it if you trigger the two thoughts being inside the other person's head. That makes sense. So you're pointing out to them where they've got two things that don't match. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you've highlighted to them an error in their thinking, and therefore, they get a chance to resolve it. Yep. Does that make sense? Because yep. what we've seen is that nearly every scientific conversation I witness in social media is really people just throwing facts at each other. So what you find is that if we create a visual for this, uh, and we do this in one of our slides, where we effectively stand on a soapbox and we project out onto the world what's in our soapbox. So all our belief systems, our views about the world, etc. And so you've effectively got two people just arguing about who's got the most correct soapbox. Now, here's where it gets really interesting, because if you ask someone why they believe what they believe they will actually just go about justifying what they believe. So you won't get anywhere. It's Mm. literally the worst question to ask. And what's really fascinating about this is so many studies about this recently, and there's this term that's called the illusion of explanatory depth. And if you ask that person, not why they believe what they believe, but actually what they believe. So you ask them to explain it. And then you get the most fascinating thing because we all suffer from this. I've suffered from it a lot over the last two years where I've gone to explain something and I realize, oh, actually, I don't know that as fully as I thought I knew it. And then it's given me the opportunity to go and research it further. And that's the beauty of doing so many presentations is you get to know what you know deeply. But one of the most fascinating things about this, they ran a series of studies where they would go up to people 
of a certain political you know association and they'd say to them why do you believe your political affiliation is the right one the person would then just justify it and then they said to them can we make a donation on your behalf and what it did it reconfirmed their beliefs so they said yeah sure but if they asked them what is it about this political party that you support and what are the policies the people suddenly realized they didn't know so then they said, can we give a donation on your behalf? And they said, oh, actually, no, I'm not sure now. Huh. So it's really fascinating because we're, the brain, what we do is to, to have sort of this ease of life, which the brain wants, and, you know, obviously we're moving around with this as one of our main tools. It fills in so many gaps for us. I mean, it, it does a lot of work. So Because there's something like a few hours a day, we have no sight. But we don't notice that because the brain fills in the gap. Mm. And there's things, so it's really fascinating that I think this really for me is one of the main things to have this self-awareness of, I think Richard Feynman really summed it up. He said, it's really important. The most important person you shouldn't fall is yourself because you're the easiest person to fall. <laughs> so I, th I think when we look inwards, and I know anyone that's done a lot of personal development um, would have looked in towards their own belief systems and double checked. That makes sense. So when you when you start exploring, you start journeying. This is why we end up really changing our views on life, don't we? Because we we go out searching, and then we we have, I think as you pointed out, truth that tends to reveal itself to you. Yeah, and I think one of the keys here is that we don't attach our identity to our beliefs, right? Like if you have a tribal identity, for example, as a as belonging to a political party. To actually look at that party and go, wait, I don't think I agree with this. It challenges your identity. And at that point, it challenges yeah. your identity. Your identity is your ego structure, your separate self-structure. It is, it is literally like a part of you is dying. It's a part of yeah. your identity. It's a part of your ego body that must die. And so it's painful. So of course, we want to push that away. We don't want to, our instinct is not to die. It's not to allow that part to die because we're attached to it. Whereas the place that actually allows for open-mindedness and the flexibility of thought is to not be attached to all of these beliefs. And this gets very difficult in professions where your entire career, your livelihood, your, the way that people know you is as an expert in a certain, in a certain topic, epidemiologist or whatever that is. And then all of a sudden, if you go, uh, actually, I was wrong um then that's so difficult because then you're saying actually i don't deserve to be the expert in this situation and, and you have to you have to sacrifice a lot now of course a true expert is always the first to be willing to admit they're wrong and that actually propels them to even greater heights because they can navigate but you see this in countless examples a, a classic example was when graham hancock went to debate the top egyptologist and the egyptologist is holding this you know holding this position that the pyramids are three thousand years old period there's nothing else to develop before that and graham hancock has countless evidence of different water damage and different things and he doesn't even he won't even sit down there and talk to him he just immediately gets up before the debate even starts and and shouts some insults and and derogatory things towards graham and just leaves just walks out of the room because he was not willing to actually look at this truth and he had no argument for it. So instead, 
he just went to attack ad hominem, which is one of the cognitive biases. And I know we'll talk a bit about that. Ad hominem, attack grandma. He's a whack. He's a kook. You know, he's unscientific. He's not an expert. And you, so you just attack the person and then he didn't have to deal with it at all. And then he could maintain his position as the authority on all things ancient Egypt. Absolutely. I mean, again, that's a very eloquent way because we start to then unravel what's going on. Because Korzybski uh, wrote a very powerful book called Science and Sanity in the 50s, I think it was. And he coined that identification is one of the most unsane thing that we do as humans. Mm. And the classic example that I think you alluded to was if someone says, I am a teacher or I am a doctor, then that's how they see themselves. But they're not a teacher or a doctor, they're a human being. Teaching is something you do. Medicine is something you practice. And I think what happens is semantically, we start coding it incorrectly. And then semantically, we start changing the pictures by which we represent ourselves. And of course, that then causes the problem. And of course, the other point you made, which was on the objectivity illusion, the three steps, the third step that I didn't mention was actually what you touched on was negative attribution to anyone that doesn't agree with us. So instantly, they're stupid. Okay. And... And if you are someone that does a lot of really clear, good research, you can think that someone that hasn't is actually, you know, it will be one of the first things that we do would attribute it being their personality. Mm. And of course, in fact, this is what they call in behavioral science or social sciences, the fundamental error. And this is something I think is one of the most fascinating things is that the fundamental error we make is that when someone behaves a certain way, we attribute it to their personality rather than the situation. And in fact, it's a combination of both. And of course, when you start looking at how children, the environments they're in, that governs how they develop much more. Because I think, personally, I think inside of us all is the Buddha mind and also disaster. <laughs> and which Indeed. side you know and which side we tap into i mean the have you seen that ted talk with the happiest man in the world no he, he's brilliant he's a monk and he's um and he discusses that they were doing these studies in schools and all they did was to get the children to meditate for 20 minutes a day they didn't tell them what to do they just gave them that space and said look go off quiet your mind relax and then after a few weeks, these children stopped bullying each other. They started sharing more. They started just being thoroughly more nicer than they were previously. And that's really just starts to big the question. Is that their inherent true nature? And is it just that they can't quiet their mind enough to hear it, the whisper? Mm. You know, the life's consciousness always whispering this to us. And I know that Reggie Ray, who does a lot of somatic descent in somatic meditations, he says that, we have so much of life and so many experiences that we're not digesting them enough. And so it's a bit like eating a meal and then we eat another meal, then we eat another meal. We never really digest them. We never really process our emotions and therefore come to terms with what's going on. And in fact, emotions is one of the most fascinating things that's going in all of this. And I could share some stories that really sort of were so enlightening and so uh, rewarding, I think, on many levels. Please do. Yeah. So one of the one of the most powerful stories that I heard when we started this project, and of course, when I go back to March 2020, I had 20 years experience in studying NLP psychology, how the mind works. And I considered myself to be a good communicator, but I had a kind of rude awakening. 
because it's really when the conversation is charged that you see how good a communicate you are. Mm -hmm. So I found myself going into conversations that just didn't go how I expected them to go. Um, so I felt hopeless for literally a month or so, just thinking, what the hell's going on? But then I sort of had the question, we need to understand this. And that's when I dived into, I mean, course after course, after book after book, managed to talk. And I tell you, one of the things around the ego, that my sister crushed my ego <laughs> With, with a question, and it's really a brilliant question. Well, she, she said something to me and then explained it. So she said to me, she said, you always think you're right. And I didn't know what to say because I was like, well, actually, yeah, I do. But I know logically I can't be. Mm. That makes sense. So I had these two things bouncing against each other where I've, you know, my brain wanted to always be right, but yet my knowledge of wanting to follow the truth and expand and growth and meditate and follow science all these things says that i can't be so what happened was those two things bang against each other and one of them has to give in <clears throat> and it's nearly always the ego that will collapse because the search for truth is much higher it's like a it's like the purpose and then i realized that once i realized that i wasn't right about things then i had to journey to search to find the truth that made sense so it was a real it was it was very tough coming to terms with that. But then we developed a question to ask lots of people. And so a lot of you know people, when they are really uh, making a presentation of a case, I asked them the question. I said, would you rather be right or find the truth? Hmm. That makes sense. So that pits the ego versus the purpose. And, of course, the person will, every time they've answered, well, obviously I want to go for the truth, but they do experience some discomfort before they admit that. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So it's almost letting go of the ego. Um, so one of the one of the most powerful stories that I've heard, and literally, it, and I told an audience on Friday night, and you could the whole audience just you know you could feel the visceral move, and it really alluded me to we were onto something that I think was very valuable. So there's a lady in our group, and she's a trained psychologist. Uh, we call her Rachel, um, and. This is a true story that she went to the local park during the lockdown and she took a few uh, colleagues with her. So there's three or four of them and they're in a park and there's this elderly lady on a bench and she has a mask on and she starts shouting over. So in the UK, we had lockdown where, you know, a lot of people weren't allowed to leave, but you could go out for certain things. So Rachel has gone down the park and that's well within her job description. She's taken a few colleagues and they're there to help anyone that's in need. So the elderly lady starts shouting over super spreaders, you know, what you're doing's wrong, really being very aggressive. And Rachel was getting somewhat agitated by this, as you can imagine. It was very, you know, out of you know, not very uh, justified. But she remembered a conversation we had. We said one of the most important things is not to step in the ring. So the minute you step in the ring metaphorically with someone, there is no conversation. There's no dialogue. All you're going to do is shout at each other. So this continued, this continued. Then the elderly lady walked over to her and she went to say something. And then Rachel turned around, put her hand on her heart. And she said, how can I help you, my dear? And this written, the elderly lady was sort of taken back. And then she said, what you're doing is wrong. And then Rachel said, look, I'm a trained psychologist. I'm here to help anyone we you know well within the law what's happening to you is not fair how can i help you 
So then the OLA looks up and says, I don't want to get emotional. And then Rachel says, it's fine. I'm a trained psychologist. I'm here to help you. You can get emotional if you need to. The older guy then looks up and says, I just need a hug. And it was, wow. So that unmet need in needing a hug then manifests as anger for not getting that. And then that anger was attached to this lady standing there thinking that it's because of her she wasn't getting her hug. Mm. Now, if Rachel hadn't have transcended that and remembered not to step in the ring, they would have just obviously, you know, gone back and forth. Sure, it started talking about, if she would have started talking about mask science and about, you know, studies on different places that locked down and didn't lock down and the, you know, aggregate reports of of case case numbers and all of that, it would have just been an argument that would have gone nowhere. Yeah, nowhere. And as it turned out, they spoke for 20 or 30 minutes and really connected. And one of the fascinating things about that story is that when I tell people that story, because the majority of people, when they think about whichever camp you're in and you have people that have opposing views, everyone thinks the other camp's wrong. That's the standard view, isn't it? That's why we're in our camp, because we think we're the ones that are you know, closer to the truth. But you see, it's the emotions that each side of it is experiencing is the key part. Because in fact, they mirror each other's emotions. So the elderly lady was feeling fear, bitterness, anger, all these things towards Rachel. And Rachel, you know, not liking lockdowns, etc., was feeling the same emotions about anyone that's complying. Mm. So what you have is this seesaw balance of divide and conquer. Uh, and we can look a little bit into that because it's, it's very interesting because Robert Sapolsky, who's a neuroscientist, I think, at Stanford, mm-hmm. has made some, I think, startling discoveries about the, literally the structure of divide and conquer. So it's really about creating the situations. And I said, so that thing, this thing about, there's a very famous book called The Person and the Situation. And really understanding, and this, I'd say this really changed my life when I understood a lot of these a bit deeper. Um, for example, the, uh, there's a very famous study from 73 from Batson and Derby around, um, they got these seminary students. So these people are literally studying to be priests. So their whole livelihood is going to be dedicated to wanting to help other people. They told half of them that they were going to give a sermon on the Good Samaritan. Okay, so that's literally in half the forefront of their mind. And then what they did, they split them into three different groups. One group, they said to them, you're going to go to the adjacent building, but you're running late, so you have to rush. The second group were told they were on time, and the third group were told you have plenty of time. Then they placed an actor on the journey, feigning in need of attention. Okay, so the Good Samaritan. Now, the group that had loads of time, 65% of those stopped. But the group that were in a rush, only 10% of those stopped. So painting this picture again, you have three different groups under a different premise, some of which think that they have ample time, some of which think that they're late. And then you have somebody who's presumably laying down, saying like, you know, making comments, gestures, things, saying the groaning, saying like, I, you know, showing that they need help. And they're going to a lecture on the Good Samaritan. The poetic, the poetic irony of this is, uh, is very rich. And yeah. so, and the difference is that when people thought they were on time, you said 65% stopped? When they had lots of time, 65% stopped. But when they were rushed, only 10%. Huge difference. Which is in, 
huge difference. So what you have, and they call it the narrowing of the cognitive map, but that really jarred me at the time because I, I thought, got out myself and thought, there's times when I'm in a rush where I know I'm not my best self. That makes sense? So if I'm going to be the best me, I need to design my environment and my situations that allow me to be the best me. Makes sense? So I've got to eat well, I've got to be rested, I've got to be on, you know, I've got to have all these situations. And then you look at the world at large. How many situations are created that people can be the best self? Yeah, most people most people are like the white rabbit from Alice in Wonderland who's always late. And I'm late, I'm late, yeah. I'm late, I'm late, I'm late. Like we go through our entire life from one thing to another and then even in the in-between time we're we're so wound up into this high-paced thing that we actually will whip out our phone and start going through different things and refreshing this post or re- refreshing our emails or just ready to like do something else because we're moving so, so quickly. And that's yeah. not going to allow us to actually be a good steward for ourselves or yeah. for the culture at all. Exactly. And of course, there's so many, because that starts to unravel a lot more things. So you've got all the dopamine, you've got the needs and wants, you've got the compulsion loops that are built into all the social media, the smart tech, all these things. So it, we live largely addictive lifestyles. And most of us are not aware. So I've, you know, I very on purpose would, you know, turn my smartphone off all the time, you know, and then become aware of if I felt anything about that. So if you said to the average person, go out and leave your phone at home, a lot of the time you'd feel this emotion and then you'd think, do I want to be that way? That's the question, isn't it? Do I want to be that way? Do I want to be a you know, do I want to be living an addictive lifestyle? But I think what's key about this is that it's it's unfair to criticize us because a lot of this doesn't make it into our awareness mm-hmm. because the brain's covering up the gaps. So, and this is the, the beauty, I think, about really understanding these situations because then you can start to create learning experiences for people where they can start to really experience it. And that's the beauty of stories as well because stories can create that. So, the majority of people that challenge the narrative, I think, have done a lot more research than anyone that wouldn't challenge it. That's just usually a given. But we often misattribute someone that not challenging it to them being not intelligent or any other number of things. And I don't think that's true. I think the situations that they've been put in a lot of the time have not warranted them developing the critical thought or any other number of things. It could be a hundred different things. Right. But creating the right situations and this comes back to i think i was watching a bit of the circling video that you had and and that's the kind of key stuff Mm -hmm. that you create a dialogue that no one's right or wrong there's no ego and all those things and then what you see is you see people flourish you see people really open up because there's another very interesting thing that you can create the right conditions to corrupt about 65 percent of the population's moral compass which seems crazy, but there's four conditions. You you just create moral justification, you minimize the consequences, you dehumanize the victims, and you displace responsibility. And then you know, two-thirds of people will start to have their moral compass distorted mm. uh, beyond their awareness. 
So how would you apply that? So let's, let's apply those four principles, apply that to, obviously we have the idea of the seminary, um, the seminary members and the being late and not late, which is their desire to be on time and be a good boy or a good girl in the eyes of some authority rather than actually being a good boy or a good girl and helping somebody who needs fucking help actually being a good Samaritan. Yep. So it's this misguided um, value hierarchy of what is actually important in your in, in your moral hierarchy. But so we have yeah. that example. Let's apply, but let's apply it to something that's more culturally relevant. I think if you took a product, so say some asbestos or anything mm-hmm. like that, where someone's selling a product that might not be in the best interest of the person purchasing it. That's a real classic example because what you'll have people say is they would go, oh, the end justifies the means. We owe it to our shareholders. I've got a mortgage to pay, et cetera, et cetera. That's moral justification. Minimize the consequences will be, oh, well, you know, we've got insurance. You know, if we get caught, it doesn't matter. All these things. Then dehumanize the victims will be, if you call a group of people a consumer, they're no longer humans, are they? They're just a name or a concept Mm. because there's this thing which in, you'll see a lot of the advertising where they have a single person looking out from the poster, making a statement. The very uh, clear reason for that, that if you say 10,000 people experience blah, 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 it doesn't really mean anything to the person. You know what the words mean, but you don't experience it. But if you have a single person looking out, you know, from a car accident saying, you know, drive, it then suddenly becomes very real. So the dehumanizing the victims is a really key point because every war you'll notice the propaganda is always the other side are bad people you know mm-hmm. they beat animals up whatever it is to to bring them down and the last space is the displaced responsibility which oh you know i'm just following orders etc cetera, etc cetera. so you fill those four things and then you'll see that people really will go oh it doesn't really matter it'd be okay if i do this mm-hmm. yeah and it takes a strong ga- character, especially if the whole group's going that way. But what Sapolsky showed, which is really fascinating, is that in the sort of divide and conquer, which also has this dehumanized victims, is that there's a part of the brain where we code morality, which is the insular cortex. And what happens is that when we see another group of people as immoral, we start seeing them as dehumanized. Um but we feel disgust towards them because only by accident that that's the same part of the brain responsible for the gag reflex. Mm. So it's only because morality developed, you know, when the brain was fully developed that we just used a different part of the brain. And I think a lot of the problems we've got are basically just misattribution and misunderstandings. So when we know thyself better, when we know thyself more, we can create the situations where we won't encounter this. And that's, you know, things like the circling and other things like that. I think they create those circumstances. Mm. That makes it's, sense. It's interesting to think about how the, because the body does things intelligently. And I, don't, and I don't think it's an accident that disgust was linked to immorality, right? Like it seems like in the, in the infinite wisdom and conscious, in, of our own consciousness, it was like, all right, what can we attach to immorality that will create the strongest averse reaction visceral visceral where it's like oh oh disgust great like we have this tool that's built in to keep us from eating feces or or rotten food or something like that 
we have that thing that's very strong that helps keep us alive and we're going to attach our morality to this thing and that will actually ensure that humans follow it but without some straightening of the codes without some ways in which we understand that this is happening and what the heuristics these little shortcuts that the brain is using to fill in then we're just the system has gone awry and it's it's actually pointing out to a different spitting out a different outcome than it was ultimately designed so it's not that it was a design flaw it's actually the software that was put into the hardware we're not using it we're not using it right and i think and also we're being misled in in a lot of instances as well like the social structures don't really reflect what our needs are do they so you know it's just a lot of the time you know it's like when you look at ceos it's like three times the average ceo has a psychopathic nature than the average person or a sociopath so uh, actually i think we did actually look at this a friend of mine it's actually psychopath it's actually psychopath. both of them that yeah <laughs> they literally display that because he said that to me he said sociopath and i said i'm not so sure so we googled and looked into it and it's actually psychopath um <laughs> which is i mean because they say a lot of corporations actually act like a serial killer because they don't care for their actions they're about making money but but i don't th- i think it's the conditions again so the divide and conquer that sapolsky talks about and he tells a really beautiful story and it's really got three elements to it the first one's classification which is just giving it a group label, you know, them and us. The second one's identification, which you already touched on, which is really key and, uh, and something we do in an unsane way a lot of the time. Third one is comparison. So we always compare our, ourselves as being in the better group because that's why we chose that group. That inherently isn't that problematic unless one of the groups is seen as immoral. Because once that is coded as immoral, the human brain will then start to support violence against that group Mm. as a group. It's really straightforward to break down because once you connect past the group to the human to human, it then disappears really quickly. And and the the beautiful story that uh, Sapolsky tells is in 1914 in the first world war, it's a Christmas and they have a ceasefire. I'm not entirely sure why it was. I think it was because there were so many bodies in no man's land that they were, you know, having trouble killing each other. So they they had the ceasefire to recover the bodies. So then what you found was each side, the Germans and the English troops, knew that they weren't going to shoot each other. So then they started helping each other recover the bodies. And then they started helping each other dig the graves. So then you had this thing where they started relating to each other as people rather than as a German soldier or an English soldier. So it went beyond the symbolic nature or where they were. And then what happened was that they started exchanging addresses to communicate after the war. And then, famously, they had a football match. (laughs) They're literally playing football in no man's land. And then the following days, they didn't want to fight anymore. And it took officers going into the trenches to threaten to shoot them unless they started fighting again. And for me, that gives me so much hope because in such a short space of time, you know, they've been trained for years. And then in the space of days, they're like, I don't want to do this anymore. And he also says that so many um, of the guns during wars are not fired. And I didn't realize this. He said there's a high percentage of guns that are not fired and the person would rather die than kill someone else but we're not told this. Mm. It's incredible, isn't it? When you start to see that 
And I think that's that sort of Buddha, Buddha mind, Buddha nature thing that when you can reconnect someone back to their self and their, you know, and, you know, seeing each person as another unique individual, I think it breaks through all that conditioning in such a quick, you know, space of time. Yeah. And it's, you know, we see it on, the thing is, is that you may be thinking like, yeah, that other side dehumanizing me, those sheep over there dehumanizing me. And then you're like, wait, did I just call him a sheep? Wait, that's not a human. <laughs> you know, like, like what, what did I just do? And we'll slip into these traps, you know, like, yeah, all right. Yeah. Yeah, of course it hurts if you're being called a fascist because you support your sovereignty of your own health or your Q adjacent because you question the effectiveness of masks or like whatever the different labels or a domestic terrorist because you choose not to take the vaccine, <laughs> like all of these different things. And then you say, then your natural vitriol will rise and then you want to dehumanize the other side and you get in this Hatfields and McCoys of dehumanization until you're literally yeah. ready to go to war against each other. And, yeah. and, the, and the powers that be understand this and understand these tribal impulses and the ways that you can rally and like get people to, again, divide and conquer, be at each other's throats and be fighting yeah. amongst fighting amongst each other, which obviously serves a greater power because it's easier to control when people are not united. And this is where obviously there's whole rabbit holes of conspiracies and different things, but whether or not there's an intelligent force that's actually doing this or whether this is just a product of what's happening because of our own inherent nature, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, the solution is the same. Like we have to go back to what we were talking about before and see the individual, like see the person who's on the other side and understand, okay, like you, we're looking for the same things. We're looking for safety. We're looking for a place to feel comfortable and also recognize that that comparison thing is, is a slippery, seductive trap for the ego yeah. because the ego only knows itself in relative position. Are you a good basketball player? I don't know. It depends on who you're playing. If I'm playing against fourth graders, I'm fucking LeBron James. If I'm playing against <laughs> yeah. LeBron James, I'm a fourth grader. You know, like it just, it, it entirely depends. And, and we have that as far as our personhood. And again, one of the things that we like to think about ourselves the most is that we're the most moral. So when you have morality linked in, oh, I'm helping other people. I'm doing this for the greater good. And you have both sides vehemently believing that they're doing something for the greater good. That's the deepest part of the identity and the ability to say, I'm better than all of those people. I'm better than Joe Rogan. You know, like he has all of these different things that secretly you may want, but if you're more moral than him in your framework, then you get to stand your feet of your ego right on his head and, and piss on him and be like, look at me pissing on Joe Rogan. That must mean I'm fucking special. And I'm just using Joe as an example. There's countless other people from both sides that people are doing this. Yeah. I'm pissing on Joe Biden. I'm the president of the United States. I'm pissing on this person. I'm better than them. And it's so seductive for the ego to pile bodies of people's identities underneath you to say, well, I may not be happy with my life, but I can tell you one thing, I'm better than all these fucks. And at that <laughs> yeah. point, you know, it's it's something that feels really good to the ego but it's incredibly damaging and it will never actually oh, make it's destructive good. it's it's destroying it's absolutely yeah it's destructive i i was sent a article some time ago and i think it was it was a very deep article and it, it explained that there's four dynamics and in any relationship you're always going to be one of these four dynamics 
And and when I started looking out at the world, I, re- I mean, it literally changed my life because I realized when I would be doing that. So there's, there's the four dynamics. The first one is, is called supplicative, but what it really is, it's the parent-child. So for the first six years of life, the child is at the full mercy of the parent. You know, um, they kind of look to them as God. Whatever you say, I believe. Okay, and it's the 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 parent has all the power. The child is just you know following whatever's said. And there's a lot of people that are in a relationship with their government in that respect. That it's still in that sort of format. The second one was combative, and that's what you really described there, is that people will get their sense of value by bringing someone else down. Because if you think about it, you're always trying to look bigger. So there's two ways you can look bigger. You pull the other person down, which is combative, or you start to go up, which is competitive. Mm. Now, there's nothing wrong with being competitive in a lot of environments, particularly sport, because you're just trying to do better. Mm-hmm. When it comes to conversations, obviously, you don't want to compete because then you're not listening. You're just trying to win the argument. But the fourth dynamic was really profound. And then I, I kind of made the decision to really build or everything around that, which was cooperation. And if you create that cooperation, so then if I see a group and I don't think that they're messaging correctly, I want to cooperate with them and influence them by just showing them what I think is the better way. And, and if it's self-evident, a lot of the time they shift. But if I start having a go at them and saying, you're doing it wrong or I do it better, that's a terrible way to approach it because that triggers the ego, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And I think that I think the ego is, is a big problem that we have. And we run a lot of sessions to show people how to start unraveling that. Because it's really nice when the because the ego is quite useful as a sort of map to the world, isn't it? But when you when it starts, you know, driving the the bus <laughs> than yourself, then that becomes very problematic. Mm. the The key thing that that from my perspective is you. So I call the ego in my own model. I call it the player, right? And I call it the player because it's there's the athlete, which is the body. You know, that's just the one that moves and reacts and the instincts and the and the sweat and the muscles and all of that. Well, and then you get a jersey and the jersey has your name and the jersey has your number and the jersey has your team. And you're a player. And there's a set of rules for how you play. And the player determines how good it's doing based upon the set of rules, whether it's actually, if the rules are you have to score this many points, you can't get this many fouls, you, you're trying to win this game. It determines the game and then you try to win and then your superego or your judge or your coach is actually helping to try and guide you. The, the thing about it is, is that we have the ability to change the game that the ego, the player is playing and just determine the rules. So yes, it's very painful when you're identified with being right. If that's a part of the game that you're playing where you're saying, my player wants to be the most right all right, well, that's a very dangerous game because then it's going to be really hard for you to acknowledge when you're wrong. Whereas if you change it and say, ah, my player wins the game by having the highest mental flexibility and the most compassion for other ideas. And that is your guiding, that's your guiding star. That's how you score points as a player. Like that's what defines you is your willingness to admit when you're wrong. And that is the highest virtue that you've placed in on the game board that's etched into the game board that your player is playing then actually the ego can serve your purpose yeah because then you're saying like okay i'm i'm winning 
I'm winning because I'm I'm the most mentally flexible. It's instead of so instead of dismantling the ego, it's just changing the rule set. It's like let's yeah. put actual virtues in place of the pseudo virtues that we're currently using to win this win loss finite game metric and say, all right, let's replace it with some more infinite game metrics and then allow my ego to fuel me to be the best. Cause it's going to do that no matter what, be the best at this different game and this different set of metrics. That's a, that's a really good analogy because that's what happens. I mean, a lot of people, the majority of people from what I can see mean good. You know, there's very few, there are some people that, do deserve to be in jail and there's some people that are quite you know nasty but the majority of people have good intentions yeah so when the one thing that really struck me was when two people came to a conversation just how convinced each person was that they were correct okay and so it's the circumstances so when you look at society as a whole we tend to reward the things that don't create a good society and we don't reward the things that do so the game, the metrics you're talking about, the metrics, I mean, like every sport and game is all about winning rather than, you know, ethically, honestly, and all those things. And But when you shift the game and the metrics, everything changes. Mm. Yeah, it, it's so it's so key because it's it's like the rules of life, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I know there's there's many books written on this. And the thing is that you do feel greater contentment. You know, I, I worked on projects. Some of the projects I worked on in consulting were just soul-destroying. I mean, I've worked on projects where I've moved like half a billion offshore and done all these things, and and everyone on the project is generally a nice person, you know? But they're rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic because they're effectively doing a job very well without realizing where is the general society going that makes yeah. sense. It's like the it's I think I think a lot of it's to do with holistic thinking, isn't it? So if we if we only think about what we're doing in isolation without what it means in the bigger picture, then I think we miss the bigger picture. And I think mm-hmm. as a society, if we start to think that way, you know, it's pretty incredible. I mean, some of the I mean, like Rat Park. Have you come across Rat Park before? Mm-hmm. So this is really fascinating. So in the 70s, they did these studies trying to understand addiction. And what they did was they put a rat in a cage and they gave it two water bottles. One of the water bottles had heroin and the other one was just water. And pretty much every time the rat would just overdose and kill itself. And that's when they said, oh, okay, addiction's just driven by, you know, an addiction to the substance. And then Colin Alexander came along, who was a brilliant psychologist, and he said, well, the rat's in the cage on its own confined it's got nothing to do it's isolated so he built this thing called rat park where it was just this big you know amazing place loads of rats in there they could eat whatever they want they had loads of toys they could mate they could do anything he then put the two water bottles in there the rats never overdosed and they hardly ever touched the heroin wow that's profound i'm surprised i've never heard of that study it's it's incredibly profound yeah, it's mind-blowing. But where it goes even deeper, then they said, oh, maybe it's just a you know a part of the rat mentality. Maybe it's not humans. But there was a human study, and it was the Vietnam War. Millions of soldiers come back addicted to heroin. 95% of them quit overnight cold turkey with no assistance because then their, their life was back. And that's when we get onto the, the wants and needs. 
And this is when it gets really interesting because in those situations, you could, there's a case to be made that when the people have their needs met, they don't get addicted. Hmm. Because I think from the research I've looked at, and there was a brilliant book called The Brain That Changes Itself, that I interpreted it as that the there's, and this really just comes back, I think, to evolution and knowing thyself. There's two parts of the brain. There's one part of the brain that governs your wants, and there's another part of the brain that governs your needs. And historically, these was like a railway track. They were always connected. For instance, if you went back 100,000 years and you had a sugar craving, what could you get? Vegetables, fruit. You know, if you needed connection, you had to meet someone. So every time the want would meet the need. And I think it's because of modern society that we've been able to distill the trigger from the substance. And our brain is not able to differentiate the difference between them. Mm. That once we get the want met, we get the dopamine here, but we never get the need met. And that's what ramps up the addiction. So it's the hungry ghost, isn't it? You know, the mm. expression where the, the ghost has no neck. So, it, so it's an itch you cannot scratch. Mm. And what you'll see is that I think when you look at a lot of society and a lot of the way that a lot of the you know, businesses function is to on purpose not meet your need in order to get repeat business. Yeah, I mean, this is the this is the the top criticism of the you know medical industrial complex, right? Is its treatment, its perpetual treatment without cure. Yeah, yeah, and and many other businesses the same way is that they, I mean, even like Candy Crush is structured to keep hitting the dopamine receptors, because what happens is you get in in games now. I started to look into the game design. They create these things called a compulsion loop. Okay. So what happens is you get this, this cycle of, of the desire, you get the reward, you get the dopamine, and then you want, you know, you want to go up to the next level. Now you have people sitting there, well-meaning people that are stuck playing the game till 3 a.m. when they could be doing something much, much better. But you can become a victim of your own brain. It's very easily done. I mean, I've got kind of a highly addictive personality myself. So if I'm not conscious of these things. I could find myself doing any, it's only because of my awareness of what they do that I protect myself from them. But I would be quite easily sit there for five, six hours playing a game and not realize that I'm just, and what's really fascinating about this is that when you spend all that dopamine, there's none left to spend on life. Mm. So in fact, motivation just goes through the floor. He said, so it's really being, it's like a bank account. And of course, you know, because we, if we have too much dopamine, we don't have enough serotonin, then we don't f- experience those special moments, all these things. But it's so easy to go out of balance, mm. especially yeah. when the whole of society is built on it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, these problems, these challenges that we face are unique to our evolutionary history. You know, we've never had to deal with things that can offer dopamine at such levels. I mean, there was always different things and different ways that you could find some kind of satisfaction in something but not at the level that we're experiencing where every every drug every substance every game every 
every aspect of your phone and everything is just available all the porn all of the everything that you could possibly yeah, the imagine food, the sugar the distilled yeah it's, it's available you're absolutely right it's available yeah. at, at unprecedented levels and to me this is where when you have unprecedented challenges you need an unprecedented solution and i think that's this to me is the is the psychedelic revolution the new renaissance that's coming in to me this is one of the ways in which we can use tools that are a lot stronger than tools that most people use of course there's histories of thousands of years of utilization of these as sacraments but you know it's i think there was a, a for much of history we didn't need these tools because the challenges were actually manageable you know if we were riding a horse and you had to go from tucson to tempe you know well you got a fucking seven hour ride where it's just you and your horse and some sunsets and you know it's like that's a very grounding experience but when do we get that when do we get that in our yeah. life unless we're doing some crazy excursion you know it's just we're inundated constantly so finding tools that are of equal power to the challenges we face i think are important and it's not just psychedelics it's breath work and ecstatic dance and all of these yeah you know practices that can meet the challenges of our unique time Absolutely. I think, I mean, I do a lot of breath work myself and I've, you know, and I've studied a lot of these endeavors and I think, and then the question is, what are they doing? And I think they're reconnecting the person to themselves, to a, mm -hmm. to the wider consciousness, to all these other things. And then you tend to get guided better. You know, your intuition starts to work and the other things don't feel good anymore. They don't feel fulfilling. You see them for what they are, the empty promises, the, as one um, scientist was pointing out, false fixes. And, and you touched on the pornography and, and the sugar. I mean, they literally, this is where I think the thing where it's, it's now, this is an area where it's not so much that we don't have self-control. It's that a situation is so created to make it almost impossible to have self-control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they design foods where they take out elements so you'll never be satisfied. Yeah, so you could eat that food all day and all night and never be satisfied. And there's a part of people's, a lot of people's awareness that don't realize this. Yeah, because, you know, we could sit there and go, oh, would it feel nice to have a cake? And it'd be like, well, yeah, but what would it feel like after? Mm -hmm. What would it, you know, when you reconnect to yourself, I think these are the things that change. And then what's really fascinating about this with the needs and wants is that Gialdini's book, he quotes a study at the beginning where they had baby turkeys and the baby turkeys would move towards the mother. And the question was, are they moving towards the mother because they're seeing her or because she's making a noise? And in fact, it's both. But what happened was they put a predator and it was only a toy predator into the cage and the baby turkeys moved away from it. But when they had the predator, the toy, make the noise of the mother, they moved towards it. So in fact, a lot of the time, and this actually works with humans as well, and this is what Skinner and all the behaviorism, that's why um, the slot machines are so addictive, mm. because they've got the flashing lights. Toy so predators. Now, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what you have now is the behavioral sciences, and my view is the behavioral sciences have made some startling discoveries about behavior and they've made some startling discoveries about the way we make decisions okay then what they've done is they've mapped out all this choice architecture so they map out all these sort of options of the decisions you've you've got available to you 
and then they nudge you to one of those decisions. But here's the problem uh, from my perspective, is that nudges are nearly always for the person nudging's benefit than the person being nudged. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So in fact, the influence, because influence isn't a bad thing. I mean, you influence many people from podcasts, but hopefully in a very positive way. Because you're putting stuff out there, people have the ability to see it and then go, ah, I didn't think about that. But when you start nudging people using guilt, shame, you know, all these things, it's really disastrous. So one of the basic models we show is that imagine you've got two choices. There's one choice to comply and there's one choice to not comply. Okay. The comply route is painted with Teflon. Okay, and the not comply route is actually painted with sludge. So what they do is they create, so then you take all these triggers, yeah? So what they then do is realize that as humans, we often respond to the trigger rather than the substance. So then all the authorities telling you to go down the comply route get airtime. All the ones telling you not to get censored. So then what you have is that pretty much from what I can see, is that because behavioral sciences have made such startling discoveries about human behavior, if that was given to the public and then we was able to, you know, live our lives in a much more know thyself way to understand how we work, I think that would be just incredible. But in fact, what's happened is that it's been used by corporations and the government to influence people. Mm-hmm to buy more stuff that they might not need or to do, you know, for the greater good, be a good citizen. And they effectively throw all these biases at them. That makes sense. So like the trigger of listening to a person in authority, mm-hmm. which is quite a sensible thing, in, you know, evolutionary. But why are you only seeing certain authorities? Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, it's a manipulation of our inherent impulses because ultimately we don't have the time to be an authority of everything. We just don't, you know? So we have to rely on the specialization of people. Like if you want, you know, if you go back all the way, there was stone, there was stone masons and stone cutters. Like if you want your house built and you're a forager, a, a hunter, you know, well, okay, I'll give you some meat and then you work on the stones and we'll focus on our area of genius. And if there's an issue with stones, you ask the stone person. If there's an issue with your hunting, you ask the hunting person. You know, we just don't have time. Like we, we're yeah. supposed to be in this cooperative society where we can rely on other people to, oh, I'm glad you figured that out. I'm glad you know how to shut down a nuclear power plant because I certainly don't, but thanks for the power. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. so, but the problem yeah as you said the problem is is when there's not this free and open discourse and it's a selective selective amount of discourse then it's difficult to actually know what to do and i think we're in this time where now we're really being asked because of the situation because the epistemic commons have been polluted and manipulated and it's so difficult to understand that we almost have to become like mini authorities on many things so that we can actually have at least enough sense to choose which authorities we're going to listen to. Yeah, that's a really key thing. I think there's, yeah, unraveling it again and unpacking it, is that if the person that's looking to influence you does not have your best interests at heart, 
then that is a recipe for disaster. Mm-hmm. And if a certain company or institution or government has unlimited access and resources to all of these nudges, then they can make it so it just look like it's correct. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. And it's not a measure of intelligence because there's some super intelligent people that I, in my opinion, are believing things that aren't true at the moment. So when you start to look at the specifics of these and really understanding how we interpret the data is the key part that you start to, uh, what it really did for me was it answered why people were acting the way they were acting, why people were being irrational, why people were seeing. So as an example, more people die from falling coconuts than they do from sharks. Okay. (laughs) But people won't really worry about falling coconut. Yeah. But because of jaws, so many people are worried about sharks. Yeah. Because it just has that different appearance, doesn't it? Um, yeah, so all of these these biases, I mean, I find them very fascinating. There's roughly like almost 200 of them. But it's almost like the fact that they've mapped them all out, it's a bit like almost the Human Genome Project mm-hmm. in that you can look into them and go, right, oh, well, that's kind of almost a manual on how my brain works. Yeah. So if I start to understand these at a deeper level, then I can start to use my brain or drive. I'm, I use a, a very nice analogy of, of the rider and the horse. And this comes from Milton Erickson, very, very powerful, where Milton Erickson said that the conscious mind is the rider and the unconscious mind is the horse. And he'd say, who do you think's in charge? Okay. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, the horse has the last say, but it's our ability to be very conscious to communicate with the horse. Mm. And when we think about what we're conditioned to do as children and, you know, we may go somewhere that's not the best way, but when we learn to retrain that, that it becomes like really, really powerful. And I think one of the biggest problems we face as a society is the ego's refusal. And Mark Twain said this so beautifully, it's easier to fool someone than convince them they've been fooled. Mm. I have only ever met two people that thought that they were affected by advertising. Everyone else generally believes, oh, no, it doesn't, that affects other people, it doesn't affect me, Mm. okay? They spend billions. So I've been working on a way to, because we're all vulnerable to influence. That much is clear. The behavioral scientists I talk to, they don't watch advertising, they're very selective about what they watch. If they're going to absorb data, they do it in the written form, so they're not going to be influenced as much. And we were talking about the best way to get this point across. And we come up with this story. Do you know Darren Brown, Orby? No. Oh, okay. But you know David Blaine, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Darren Brown is... Yeah. Okay, perfect. So Darren Brown is a UK uh, mentalist. He's brilliant in the, in the way that he is a very much an entertainer and very skillful in understanding the biases. But let's say you go to a party, David Blaine's there. I've been he there. Says, right, Aubrey, I'm, yeah. <laughs> so he says to you, Aubrey, I'm going to show you a card trick. Okay. So he does his um, charming, um, you know, distractions and you pick a card and then you put the card back and then suddenly your card is in the fish tank. Okay. Yeah. Now, now, you know there's no way that he could have got from where you're standing over to the fish tank. So what's the only solution? That he somehow forced you to pick that card. 
That makes sense. So in magic, that's known as forcing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but you know that you've been fought, don't you? Because there's no, he's skillful at what he does. But what if the barrister, you know, the barista at the coffee shop, what if the person in the supermarket, the grocery store, what if those companies know how to force you in the similar way? Hmm. And that's what we're seeing. So we have loads we're and loads fucked. of studies. If they're as good as David Blaine, we're all fucked. <laughs> Actually, we should just end the podcast now and just be like, well, it was fun. It was a good ride. We're fucked because he's so well, good. Yeah, he is so good. But here's, here's the good news is that people like Devin Brown and David Blaine are just unique. You know, you get 6, 12 a generation. Mm. Yeah, that's the good news. However, you do have a lot of academics and, and they, they still, you know, from what I can see, they're still clumsy, but it's almost like an arms race in that when the public starts knowing thyself more, and there's going to be huge blowback, by the way, because you should only ever influence someone for their benefit, in my opinion, you know, and they sh- and it should be completely consensual. Like they should know what's going on. It shouldn't be underhand or any of those things. Now, when people start to find out about this, I think it's going to create a show. It already has in the UK. The UK, a number of psychologists have written to the government to complain about this. The use of behavioral sciences in, you know, government policy. So there's a there's a very pop. Well, there's a document in the UK. It's called Mindspace. If you Google Mindspace in government, they tell you the nine way, nine main ways that they're influencing you, but they don't tell you this publicly. You have to go and find it. And when you read about what they're doing. You know, even on their page 66, they say, well, if the public find out about this, they might not be happy. But on page 67, they say, and we can manipulate people's identity. Now, that's when you've got some pretty big stuff. But, of course, the blowback is, is that by us studying all this data, because now it's it's readily available, we can take the power back. We can mm. take the control back. We can start creating the situations where people understand things. For instance, I'll give you one of the... Um, one of the least um, unethical ways that they use it. If you go into the coffee shop and you have three options, small, medium, and large, the majority of people choose the medium. Okay? So what did the coffee companies do? They removed the small and they put an extra large in. So now they're selling the large. Yeah? What they've also done, which I've watched the – I've literally watched the videos of – people being recorded and it's mind-blowing that if they change the price of the medium to be more and to be closer to the large people now start choosing the large because now that looks more value so what you've got is there's two things that go on they either manipulate the environment knowing we have hardwired you know uh, things that we choose or they manipulate the way we see things but here's the thing. When we start to take control back of that and we understand them, not, I never fall for the decoy effect anymore, but I used to. <laughs> that makes sense. But now I know what they're doing. It changes. So then you've got this whole sort of experience opening up of all these other ones, you know, and, and what's fascinating, I think you, jokingly, I think you touched on it, where do you know that 90% of people think they're better than the average driver? <laughs> Okay, but 94% of professors think they're better than the average professor. So as it turns out, the more education you have and the more intelligent that you see yourself, the less chance you'll have of admitting you're being wrong. Hmm. 
So in fact, what we need to introduce into this, and of course, the brilliant minds of the past knew this, so they allude to it in their quotes. That's what Richard Feynman said. The easiest person to fall is ourself. Uh, he was a true genius in many respects. But I think the true geniuses are very humble, aren't they? Yeah, they see how yeah. vulnerable they are. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so there's a lot to, lot that comes to mind. Number one is obviously you think about Starbucks, and they obviously exemplified this in this. And again, it's it's one of the more benign little tricks that are played. But even the naming conventions, you know, is like grande <laughs> is the medium. It's tall and, and grande and venti. And then you're like, venti, I don't even know what that is. But grande, great. You know, that sounds, that's the middle size. Like, all right. So you have these yeah. little subtle ones. But then when you start to understand it, you're like okay all right i get i kind of get what they're doing and then you're then you can immunize yourself to the spells that are actually yeah. happening so that's that's one point i want to touch on another is i did a podcast with brett weinstein and he's very keen on the fact that so much information has changed and so many things that people were vehemently being attacked for whether it was mask policy or whether it was you know the side effects and unintended consequences of vaccination or whether it was all of these things which were if you talked about or the effectiveness of certain other alternative treatments like vitamin d all of this then you were a terrorist you were a fascist you were whatever the fuck they <laughs> yeah. wanted to call you you were an insane person science denier right conspiracy theorist yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 exactly <laughs> and now so this new science has evolved you know, or maybe it was just the, the understanding of the mainstream science, right? Science is, science is never singular, but the, the truth has been now illuminated and people are just like letting it go and not really, yeah. and he, what he wants to do is he's like, no, 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 we can't let it go. Like we must learn from this example yeah. so it doesn't happen again. We're to do a post-mortem. Exactly. And we have to stick with it and stick with it and stick with it and keep talking about it. I know you're fucking sick of hearing me talk about it, but we got to keep doing it until we get what happened. Because it's going to happen again and again and again. So if we don't hold the people accountable for these different actions and allow the people who were out there criticizing, yelling at people, denigrating them, dehumanizing them, if we don't say like, hey, you remember? Remember when you were doing this? Well, it's turned out to be wrong. Can you understand where it came from? All good. Total forgiveness. Like, we all do this, but let's look at this. So I think that's yeah. an important point. We, so we have to look at it. Absolutely. Well, Brett's actually going to be at the Better Way conference next week. Have you heard about this conference? No. So you've got pretty much, I think, 70 plus speakers from around the world. So pretty much everyone that you've known speaking out for the last two years, nearly all of them are going to be there. And they're converging in Bath for three days. Um, I'll be speaking on the Saturday about this subject um, and I think what you're going to see is a lot of this. So there's going to be a lot of conversations, a lot of dialogues, you know, how did this happen, et cetera. And I, I've watched some of Brett's uh, podcasts. So I think he's just, the way he looks at things, I really agree with. So I think that's going to be one of the start of the postmortem. It's going to be in Bath in the UK. Um, and I think it's going to be really good because people are starting <laughs> – if you heard there was a cow so people are starting to ask questions at a much deeper level now mm -hmm. um but a lot of people just want to get on with their lives but i think we've got to be a dog with a bone about this because it's the structures that were in place that created this and i think the behavioral sciences was a big big part of this 
because I've spoke to a number of behavioral scientists and, and I asked them all if they expected that what happened could have happened to the degree that it happened. And no one expected it. Now, this follows one of the real basic errors that we make. So we've all know about the Milgram studies, yeah. So Milgram did studies on compliance. And what was fascinating about these studies is that Milgram surveyed a lot of psychologists and experts before he, you know, commenced the studies. And he asked and just share estimate, the Milgram studies for people who yeah. don't know. Yes. Yeah, so, so Stanley Milgram was really, like a few people, investigating how the Second World War really occurred. How many, you know, of the people in Nazi Germany, why did they follow the orders? Why did they follow the rules? So he set up a study where the, they had an actor who was wired up to a machine, and they had the participant in the study sitting there who was asking the actor questions. He didn't know he was an actor. He thought he was another participant. And if the actor got the question wrong, he was supposed to push a button to give the actor an electric shock. And they were told that it was to see the reinforcement of you know, punishment and rewards. But in fact, the real study was on compliance to how high the person would push the button to execute the person on the other side. Now, Milgram... Let's say he surveyed a lot of psychologists and experts before the studies to see how many people would press the button. And most of the experts said less than 1%. It turned out that 65% of people would actually press the button that could give an electric shock to death, which wow. is mind-blowing. Wow. So this pops up time and time and time again where what we estimate would happen and what actually happens are massively different. And this is where the real clever people in the social psychology, the social sciences, the behavioral sciences have stopped relying on what they think will happen and start to create the situations to measure to actually see what would happen. And as a result, they start to really, so they get past that fundamental bias in thinking, you know, we know what's going on. It's everyone else that's wrong. Once you get beyond that, you start to get the true numbers. And this is the key information. This is, you know, to really see how we fundamentally, you know, operate as a human being and then how we can transcend and get to higher states of consciousness to build better software. But that information is not making it to the people. Uh -huh. It's literally now used by the big companies to know how to create the situation, to manipulate people's emotions, to their do, you know, they're acting a certain way or decide or purchase a certain product. That makes sense. And, and one of the classics is really this function of cognitive dissonance that you can create the circumstances, create cognitive dissonance, and then know what will happen. So the mask was a classic example that they said, you know, wear a mask so you're not selfish. Uh -huh. Yeah? So then the person is faced with two options. I have to change my behavior or I change my view of myself. Huh. And, and if you didn't have the awareness to go, well, I'm not going to listen to that person, and you trust what they say, you're going to change one thing. And they also did this very keenly with, if you don't do X, Y, Z, you're selfish. So what that does, that creates this dissonance that people can't experience, they can't last along, and then they change their behavior. Because what usually happens is that you will change um, 
the behavior, your change is the easiest thing to change, basically. But if they bring in the mask as a mandate and that comes from authority, then it's actually easier to change your belief system. So this is what happened about this orbit. It's really fascinating. Is that People didn't believe that masks would work. But once they wore the mask, they're now experiencing dissonance because they're doing something they don't believe is true. Do you know what they did? They changed their belief system. Now, you don't think this happens, but this happens all the time. And this is what uh, Leon Festinger showed, that he did this really famous study. He's, he's the guy that coined cognitive dissonance. So he got a group of people in and he said he gave them this really boring experience. I mean, it was tedious as hell, yeah, for like an hour. And then he said, right, he said, there's a new subject coming in. Can you please tell them that this was really interesting? Okay. They gave half the subjects a pound, uh, sorry, a dollar, and they gave the other half $20. Okay. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. The ones that got $20, Afterwards, when they were interviewed, they said, oh, yeah, that, that exercise was really boring. Because they got the $20, they felt suitably rewarded. They were fine. They had no dissonance. But the ones that paid a dollar, they actually started to believe that the task was quite interesting. So they literally changed their belief system about it. And you watch the video. You can't believe it's true, but this is what people do. Huh. It's literally mind blowing. Um, yeah, it was like the Ash studies. Did you hear about the Ash studies as I well? Did. Yeah, that's with yeah. the the people. There was different sizes of lines, and they had multiple actors, and then one actual live subject. And when all of the actors would say that these two lines, which were clearly of a different length, were the same length, then a majority of the of the actual participant subjects in the study would say, uh, "Yeah, same." even though it's clearly obvious that, that yeah. they weren't. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, what's interesting about this is it's all about the situation. So if they had one person in there get it correct, then people didn't comply with the group. This is why it's so important to stand up because the illusion of consensus becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because social proof is so powerful to our behavior. Mm-hmm incredibly powerful so this is another one of the biases and just uh, the people that haven't heard about it social proof says that we a lot of our behavior we look around to see what everyone else is doing to see what's acceptable what's normal and normalization is very key so there was a study that cialdini quotes in in one of his books where they had this forest and lots of petrified wood was being stolen so they put a sign up now, they put a sign up and it said, you know, 12 tons are being stolen a year. You know, please don't destroy the natural landscape. It turned out that that sign increased the theft of natural wood, of the petrified wood. So Cialdini come in and they set up three, you know, controls. And they had one sign that they used very good wording. I can't remember what the exact wording was, but it was along the lines of it's very bad to steal. Yeah, so it played on that. The second sign said, you know, X amount's been stolen. The third sign didn't say anything. The sign where they told people how much was being stolen actually was a crime promotion strategy. Hmm. More people stole wood than if there was no sign. You see wow. how incredible that is. So what the social proof is, of other people having stolen 12 tons are like, well, maybe I should steal some. Yeah. Yeah, it's not going to make any difference, etc. Mm-hmm. So you'll see so much of advertising, so much of 
pushing people to do things during the narrative was painting the picture that good citizens do this and most people are doing it. But I think a lot of times the numbers have been very questionable. But the mistake that we shouldn't make as being people that speak up, and there is a lot of people speaking up, is we shouldn't point out that there's a few people because there's a lot of people. So we need to emphasize the acceptance and the, the normalization of doing what's right. Mm-hmm. That makes sense because it, it, these situations, these conditions, they shift things like massive amounts of percentage. Mm-hmm. So then when you look at the narrative, what they've done is they've effectively like Swiss cheese. They've used every nudge possible to make the narrative look as strong as possible. That yep. makes sense. Yep. And, and I think one thing that's worth mentioning at this point is you could be listening to all of this and say, look at the evil of these, these bad actors who are doing these things intentionally to manipulate people and to actually influence them in ways to support their own greed and their own, you know, their own agendas. And you can go down a whole rabbit hole of that, but actually that would be ignoring another very simple bias. And the bias is the self-serving bias. The idea that you can convince yourself that what you're doing is the right thing when really you just want to do it for some selfish reasons. But so all of these people who are pushing the narrative, they're probably not evil people they're probably have just convinced themselves whatever pharmaceutical tycoon or whatever uh, advertising executive or politician they're saying, well, we may be manipulative, but nonetheless, it's the right cause. And we need to manipulate people because, you know, this is what is actually going to save our, save our world. And this is what's going to end the pandemic. This is going to flatten the curve. And we got to use all of the tools necessary. This is war. And we got to have a war against this virus and whatever, whatever we got to do, we got to do it. And so they paint themselves as a hero when really actually what's going on, their true drive is, well, actually, I just want to you know, make another 40 billion this year, or I want to get in power in the next election cycle, or, but they'll convince themselves that they're doing something right. Just like, yeah. as you mentioned, you know, in, in all of the tyrannical despots of our time, very few said, yeah, I'm going to fuck people up because I like it. Yeah. You know, they're like, no, I'm going to build a better this. I'm going to build a better Germany. I'm going to build a better Russia. I'm going to build a better Italy. I'm doing it for Italy, mother Russia, and, you know, the Aryan race or whatever the fuck justification you have. People think that yeah. they're doing it, and it's this self-serving bias. Really, they want power. Yeah. Really, they want control. Really, they want they want resources. But they're convincing themselves constantly that they're doing the right thing. Yeah, that's the moral justification. That's one of the main steps. It's very few people think they're on the evil side. A very, I mean, I mean, it's actually very hard <laughs> to actually point to one who really does. Maybe a few psychopathic serial killers who are like and you see him in like the occasional batman villain like bane where it's just like yeah yep he knows he's evil and he's down for it yeah there there is a there is a term with those psychopaths i can't exactly remember is now but they've they do it where they're interviewing a serial killer and then they slow it up and then they see the smirk Mm -hmm. and it's where they get off on you know misleading people but that's a very small percentage of people. Yeah. What you'll find is that most people, I think most people can't comprehend how it's possible for things to happen. And the fascinating thing about history is that we never learn from it. And then I have the question, can we learn this time? 
there's always an opportunity. I think now, you know, you, you've only got to pick up a history book to see what's happening now. I mean, it's obviously on steroids now, but yeah, these things happen always. And how can it be? See, this always troubled me when I was growing up. They said, oh, yeah, so, you know, you've got a war and then one side, they're all bad people and this side's all good. And I'm like, what are the odds on that? <laughs> Seriously, what are the odds that every bad person was born in that country? <laughs> you know what I mean? It just it doesn't make any sense whatsoever, does right. it? And then you understand that it's ideology, it's belief systems, it's if you can convince someone to do something and then, of course, what we have to do is work out, well, how do we evolve? And I think it's relatively straightforward. It's, you know, connect to self, break the group identities. You know, there's this thing of a caricature, which is obviously, you know, if you go and have one of those caricatures painted like a cartoon picture. When we're talking to people, we very much often will orientate ourselves to the caricature of how we think that person is. But then when we truly connect to them, we break the caricature. Nothing about that group applies anymore. And it says we can really transcend it and go, actually, this person's really, you know, genuine person. And I, I think that's where we've had the greatest success on the project is really showing people once you connect, you break the caricature. There's two things really, which is the, the situation's the biggest thing. You know, if you're in a situation that's, you know, completely negative. It's very hard to connect. But if you get the context right, then you connect right and you stay calm and then you start talking to each other, people do listen. You know what I mean? It's very, very different. It's yeah. uh, it's very kind of profound. Um, and I think one of the funny um, ways that people talk about this, this objectivity illusion is that um, if you think about a baseball, what are the judges called in baseball? The umpires. Umpires. So if you think about the umpires, the there was a very famous quote where they said, one umpire says, I call it as it is. And the other umpire says, I call it as I see it. <laughs> now that's very different, isn't it? Because <laughs> the second one's very aware is this is my perspective of what's going on, where the first one thinks he's connected with objectivity, which is an illusion. <laughs> I think if we all take that second perspective and then we create the right situations we have these conversations i think that things could heal so quickly i think there's a there's another big piece actually which is you know unresolved emotions and obviously breath work and so many other things are fantastic for that uh, so we create situations to actually resolve these emotions because in divide and conquer that's where you've got that seesaw of emotions it's finely balanced isn't it that the people that are complying are pissed off with the people not complying, and the people not complying are pissed off with the people complying. Who's missing from the picture? The people pushing the bloody policies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you have people divided against themselves. And it's almost like if we just say, hang on a minute, let's stop fighting. It's down tools. Let's have a conversation. I think it's almost that ability to step up. You know, we're stuck in a game, aren't we? We're stuck in a game of chess and just go, actually, I'm just going to step back for a minute and just watch. And that's what we've done really at a meta level, is, as you pointed out. We, what are the, you know, how is the game playing out? Mm. And then almost how can I break the game yeah. to Change create the, the situation? Board. Yeah, exactly. That's it. I think that's so key. Change the situations. You should, there's so many ways of doing it. And I think, 
I mean, I'm fortunate enough to have spoke to so many of the scientific groups now and really relayed a lot of this information to them. And I think we've had some really good discussions about that. I think it's self-evident. That's what I think is so fortunate about it. There's so many of these things are self-evident that if you can portray it and explain it in the right way, people go, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. That's the, that's the you know, it's uh, the fancy word of saying that is there's certain things that you hear that are anthro-ontologically valid, like where you, you know, anthropos, like you understand the meaning of it in your own self. You feel it. You feel the truth yeah. of these things. And you're like, oh, that's true. And, and there's a lot of ways that your mind will try to convince you otherwise, and there's all kinds of biases, but we do have a, a pretty good truth compass again, but like you said in that study about the kids who meditated for 20 minutes and cleared their mind for a moment, and now the bullying and all that went down, it's just taking a moment, yeah. listening, like getting, getting quiet, and then you'll start to understand and feel what feels true and what doesn't feel true. And, and that'll, that'll help a lot. <laughs> that'll help a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And of course, then we, when we look at, uh, there's some really fascinating studies as well is about how we present information. So if we present information to people just in raw fact form, if they already believe it, then it's fine. But if they don't, they're going to reject it almost a hundred percent of the time. But if we wrap that fact in a story, it will last 20, it will land 22 times more effectively according to Jerome Bruner's work. The brain, and this is where you, you know, I'm sure you've heard of Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey, mm -hmm. this, this incredible work. And of course, uh, Joseph Campbell actually worked on Star Wars with George Lucas. That was the underpinning of the story. So what Joseph Campbell did was he traveled all around the world and he discovered that pretty much every culture had this storytelling process. So we would tell the next generation stories and they would learn through the stories. And in mm -hmm. fact, you know, a lot of people now say that we're governed by the stories we tell ourselves. And that's the key because if you think about a conversation, what I was doing initially is I'd tell people, you know, don't do this, do that, don't do this, do that. But it wouldn't have much effect. But when I started to tell them stories – it changed mm -hmm. because in fact what stories do stories talk to the unconscious mind as does metaphor mm -hmm. and questions obviously the socratic method and what's fascinating is when you go back to like ancient greek plato said those that tell the stories will rule society and aristotle said the greatest thing to learn is metaphor and obviously socrates was responsible for the socratic method so the three methods to start really communicating with people is via stories, via the use of metaphor, and via the use of very artistic questions. Mm. How to because questions you can really guide someone's attention, and you can start you know also the questions we ask ourselves because we start to look inwards, and start to really question our own belief systems. Mm -hmm. Because that's where I mean that's the growth, isn't it? To say okay, I thought it was this, but actually maybe it's not that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is, uh, you know, with this 
this is now in some ways uh, an arms race of some sort of like who's telling the who's telling the most effective stories it's like mem- memetic warfare it's using memes yeah. using these ideas short little stories people don't have the attention span always for longer stories although of course we watch a lot of movies and shows there's a lot of opportunity for longer form stories but it's these quick things and uh you know i noticed just you know a pop culture reference of something that was highly effective it seems as if Johnny Depp in this Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, which is getting a lot of publicity. Obviously, he was canceled for I don't know the details, but some some act against Amber Heard, some I think domestic abuse, some claim that that was made, and he hasn't been in movies and since that claim, and then now it's in trial, and he's suing her for a fifty million dollar defamation. And um, believe all of those facts are accurate. I apologize if they're not, but fundamentally, I don't know shit about shit. I actually don't know anything, but I saw one video that was hilarious. And it was a video where she had taken a shit on his side of the bed and he actually <laughs> took a picture of it. And uh and they made a they made a compilation set to Metallica's Nothing Else Matters. And it and it and the chorus was human fecal matter and it like went through this oh, whole thing and it was hilarious. And but ultimately I recognized like of course, it's telling the story of her potentially taking a shit on his side of the bed. But all of a sudden, in my mind, partly maybe because it was funny, partly because it highlighted the fact that she did this one thing, I was I started to feel, ah, oh, Johnny Depp's innocent. You know, like, he's innocent. You know, but I don't know that. I have no fucking clue. Yeah. I have no fucking yeah. clue what happens but because that meme was so effective in telling this one story in a funny way in a way that got me laughing and like it won and i i have to be vigilant i have to be vigilant in my own mind to be like all right i know that video is hilarious and i know like you want that to be your version of the truth but my vigilance has to come in and say still you don't know anything but you know laugh at the video great but don't be seduced into believing something based upon this meme I think the level of awareness there is really key, isn't it? Mm. To to think, okay, we're all easily fooled. But the other thing is just how stories are so compelling. So I've, as a bit of a project, I watch, I generally don't watch TV, but I'll watch movies and a few things. And then I'll, I'll look from the storyteller's perspective and see what's going on. So you think with the Jack Reacher show, so what they're trying to do is they're trying to get you to associate with the character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what they had the character, the first scene, he walks into a, you know, a shop and then there's a guy that's abusing his girlfriend. Okay. And Jack Reach is like six foot six built like a brick shit house. So he just walks over and just stares at the guy. Yeah. And he just stands it and the guy goes, you know, what's your problem? And of course it's Jack Reach is, you know, massive. And then the scene just holds and holds. And then the guy goes, oh, I'm really sorry. I got angry. I won't do it again. So now you're, oh, I like this Jack Reacher guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got very good morals. And there's another scene where, you know, a gentleman's not really looking after his dog. So Jack goes and punches him and does his other thing. So it's all building this emotional association with the character. And I said, that's what they're doing. It's a very well storytelling. Yep. Now, the media knows about this, and it's no – the media was losing money hand over fist, but yet suddenly all these influential people bought the media. And there's a reason, because those that tell the stories rule society. Yep. 
But we don't realize, and obviously you did in the story that you told, most people don't realize the effect the stories have on us. And in fact, most people dismiss them as entertainment. Mm -hmm. But in fact, stories are the way that we've always, through generation to generation, passed down important information and morales. The moral of the story is so key. Mm -hmm. And then what you see is someone like um, a character like Sherlock Holmes, who's one of my favorite characters. I very much like, you know, detective work. And then in the new series in the UK, in the third series, he kills someone in cold blood to defend, you know, part of the establishment. Now think about what that's telling people. Okay, it's okay to commit cold murder as long as it's for protecting national secrets, etc. Mm. Now, there's an Italian researcher that showed some of the power stories. He did research on, I think it was Harry Potter, and he showed that children that had read Harry Potter were actually less, were very more tolerant to immigrants than those that mm. hadn't. Mm. So, and there's in fact there's a body of work now, I think, by Lisa Cron that suggests that the civil rights movement was kicked off by To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm. There's a lot of data that says that we're really shifted, not by facts, but by stories and what mm. touches us. And I think what you touched on, when you, when you feel, there was someone that said, truth is like the center of town. You always know when you're there. <laughs> yeah? You yeah. kind of, you're like, oh, I've, oh this makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had, a really, I had a really powerful moment the other day. I was talking about justice. And I was, there's so many stories that highlight and, and have a hero who carries out vigilante justice, right? Who takes justice in their own hands. And, and you actually want that because I think we have this, justice is a virtue that we, it's mm -hmm. something deep, deeply encoded. Like we want people to get their just desserts. Like this is this idea yes. of like justice is very big. And we also have this, doubt that justice is actually being served by the system so the vigilante goes out and he carries out all of the all of the different acts and he but really all of that is is it's reinforcing and denigrating the idea that there is a system of justice and that's important that you have due process and that you're yeah. innocent before proven guilty you know and yes there may be a rare circumstance where some vigilanteism is necessary or required but it's the most extreme circumstance and actually I recognized in my own in my own understanding of things certain cases where in and you see this in the way that you know the internet tries to carry out justice on some supposed perpetrator they hear a story of a victim or they hear something and then it's like we have to take justice in our own hand but that person never went to trial they never got to tell their side of the story I mean again to go back to the Johnny Depp Amber Heard at the very least now they're both getting to tell their story and like this is a necessary part of justice. It was not justice before both stories were heard. It just could not be until that was done. So really the hero of the Western is not the person who's going around killing everyone. It's the one who says, I know you all want to lynch this man, but we're taking him to trial. And if you try to violate that code of justice, because I stand for justice, if you try to violate that code, like I will defend him, you know, and I will defend his right to trial. And like, there are some of those stories, but they're overshadowed by the other stories of the vigilante taking it into his own hands. And I think that story has got us to the place where we feel like we have to carry out social justice ourselves because, you know, otherwise it's like, it's all up to us. And that ultimately just 
denigrates and defames Lady Justice herself. Yeah, I think the the system is obviously it's the situations we're in, isn't it? And I think that was a big, it's a really key point because my initial reason for kicking off the project was that I was seeing that the media was painted a very one-sided thing. So I was like, okay, well, I've got to show people the other side. And then I quickly realized it's not about being on a side. It's about creating the situation where you get free-flowing information. Mm -hmm. People don't feel need to demand themselves, and then you've, you've got proper dialogue, proper connection, all those things. So I, I really shifted the view there. But I think people do want justice. And I think inherently most people want to be fair. Mm-hmm. The majority of people. The problem is, and I, th- I think it was Plato that said, is that you don't need laws. Good people don't need laws, and the bad people will find a way around them. <laughs> so we find ourselves in these paradoxes so often, and this uh, this getting justice is a big thing because it really drives a lot of people. Mm-hmm. People can't stand injustice. Yeah, it's a it's a deep fundamental distaste that we have for injustice and it's about really understanding it's again having a greater awareness this all goes to greater awareness like yes maybe for this one time this lynch mob this social lynch mob is correct you know certainly there's been cases where that has been correct and uh, i'm not saying it's not correct but actually the correctness is limited because even in that instance where it might have been correct it's actually defiling the whole structure the entirety yeah, yeah. of justice itself so it it like it, it it's something that we can't stand for it's just like it, you might be right in a single instance to censor someone from speaking something from a from a very pragmatic standpoint maybe censoring this thing actually you know causes less harm and helps more more people but it's such a slippery slope because the moment you do yeah. that you start to denigrate free speech which is then this giant umbrella structure like justice, freedom of speech, all of these different things, when even in the specific, if you believe you're right, and again, it's just you believing you're right, and maybe you are, but at what cost? At what cost to the greater whole? At what cost to the whole system? Uh, I think that, again, is another very important point because you can't, I think it was Chomsky who ironically has kind of degraded his own view, I think, in some ways, but he said... um, if you don't support freedom of speech for those that you detest, then you don't support it. It's yep. not only for the people you like. And I think there was a uh, Cole Popper who was a professor, a, a scientific professor of philosophy, I believe. He made a very important point, which he said, there's an asymmetry between verifiability and falsifiability. And what he was referring to is that most people would just nod their heads and say, yes, I agree with that. But the people that are saying, no, that's not true, are the ones that we need to listen to. Mm-hmm. Now, that's quite complex to try and get your head around. So then we turn that into a story. And I think that's one of the things that we've, I think what we're bringing, with, you know, we're looking to provide a service in taking a lot of complex stuff and making it easily accessible, you know, in, in simple stories. Because a lot, the thing is, have you heard of this curse of knowledge? Mm-hmm. It's one of the biases, and it's really profound because what it what it says is if I tap out on my desk here a tune and I ask you to guess that tune, I'm going to be bound by my own curse and knowledge. So what they did with all these studies is that the person tapping would guess 
that the listener would get it right 50% of the time. And in fact, they only got it right about 5% of the time. So what you have is that I'm bound by the fact that I'm listening to it, but I already think, you know, so anytime I describe something, there's a thousand ideas wrapping around that subject. Yeah. And likewise. So anytime we're talking to each other, we've got a much deeper knowledge of what we mean than what we're saying. So how do we explain it in such a way that it's really clear? And this really shows why there's some incredible pieces of work, thousands of them, sitting in people's desks because they never found a way to translate it in a way that most people could understand it. Mm-hmm. So we created a few metaphors to get around this. And one of them was the hotel of knowledge. So if you imagine all that you know about health and fitness or anything like that, so you've got floor by floor. Yeah. And then you get to your penthouse and it could be a very tall hotel. Okay. And you've got, and you're trying to talk to someone that knows nothing. They haven't even come in the lobby. Mm-hmm. so you can't talk to them from the penthouse because it doesn't make any sense to them so you've got to go down to common ground so what we found is that most conversations people would because people like to talk about advanced stuff it's kind of interesting so people would be talking about all these concepts that the other person hadn't even heard of and they would lose them and of course what they often reply is oh you know you're a conspiracy theorist or whatever because they hadn't heard of it so that's a really key point is this curse of knowledge and Additional to it, what Popper said was, with this asymmetry, which is a lot of the time, you know, driven by aspects of the curse of knowledge, is that it's the people that speak up. It's the few people that are the canary in the coal mine. We need to listen to those. And mm-hmm. history has always shown that it's always one or two people from, you know, the Limeys. English are known as the Limey because of the vitamin C deficiency, would cause scurvy. Mm-hmm. And the guy that discovered that, pretty much similar to Semmelweis, was he was told it was nonsense. 200 years went by before they actually realized he was right. Okay. Hmm. But what Karl Popper said, and I think we tell a, a little sort of kid story about it, I think it's very, very easy to understand. And it's very funny. It's like, let's say my theory, Aubrey, is that in my local park, there's no squirrels. Okay. That's my scientific theory. I send 100 people with cameras to the park. They come back three days later, only two of them have got pictures of squirrels. Are there squirrels in the park? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Okay. So what if I censor those two people? No No squirrels squirrels in the park. (laughs) And that's what we've done. Yeah. We've taken the people where we should be listening to them. They're not always going to be right. But what Popper said is there's such an asymmetry between false viability, which is, can I prove that theory to be false? If I can, the theory is not true. Uh-huh. All the people that can prove it to be true really doesn't add anything to it. Uh-huh. And, yeah. said, and that's what he was really pointing out. It's the ones that say, hang on a minute. Yep. There's something here that doesn't make sense. And if you can prove that, so if I get two pictures of squirrels, it doesn't matter how many people tell me they didn't get any pictures. Mm-hmm. There's a squirrel there. And obviously, as long as those people aren't 
taking pictures from a different park, but let's assume and that's, that we can And that's trust what them. everybody would say, right? And that's if there was a narrative about no squirrels in the park because there was if there were squirrels in the park, they couldn't develop a fucking high-rise in there and there's billions yeah. of dollars to build this high-rise <laughs> and there was a squirrel protection committee and they would say, these those pictures are not from this park, even though it clearly looked exactly like the tree that was in this park. They'd be like, nope, uh, it's Photoshopped squirrels, whatever, discard. Yeah. And they would have the, <laughs> yeah. the force to do that. Yeah. Well- this has been uh, an epic conversation, David, and I think we could c- carry on and continue doing this, and maybe we will at some point. But you've mentioned your project a few times. Before we get out of here, what is, um, where can people go to find a little bit more of what you're up to? Okay, so we, the, if you go to the reachingpeople.net website, uh, everything's found there, really. Uh, so we spend a lot of our time basically donating to a lot of the academic scientific groups, that are challenging the narrative, I think, to level the playing field. Um, So there's three pillars of the project. One pillar is how to have good conversations. And that's not how do I convince someone of something. That's Mm -hmm. how do I get a good conversation? How do I connect with someone? How can I get them to listen to me and me to listen to them? The second pillar is how to message effectively. If you've got a very important message, how do you get that out there without triggering people to get people to look at data? And then the third piece, which is I think we touched a lot tonight, was um, how we influenced and how can we know thyself better? Mm. You know, so I think that's what we do. And it's been great. I've watched uh, some of your podcasts, and it's really funny when I listen to them. I was like, ah, you know, you you already know so much about this, and I think that comes from just looking at thyself doesn't it mm. i think this this when we know the vulnerability of ourselves to fool ourselves to misinterpret things and all those things and we think the best of others until they prove us otherwise then i think we create better conditions to connect Absolutely. You know? and there is there is people out there you know when i say to people i think it's an important point is it's not fair And what I mean by that is if you're going to have a conversation with someone that couldn't give a shit about whether you're right or wrong or whatever, but you are caring about creating the right situations, that's not fair. Mm. But would you rather be in their shoes? (laughs) You know, we, because we get the control back, don't we? To say, okay, I'm going to, regardless of what the other person does, I'm going to create the situation that either person in the conversation would accept them to be the right conditions. And so it is. Thank you for your work, David. Really appreciate this and appreciate this conversation. Onward thank we you. go. Uh, it's been, yes, it's been a thank you for the time and energy and the, uh, and the conversation. I think it's been great. Absolutely. Take care, everybody. Much love. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you're interested in more from David, check out reachingpeople.net, answering the questions, why do people not respond to facts? Why do people not respond to logic? Why do people not respond to reason? Well, you got to reach people and that's the purpose of this website. So check it out. Thanks for tuning in. I love you and I'll see you next week.